Kinza Najm is a Pakistani-American visual artist whose interdisciplinary artistic practice explores gendered violence and female subjectivity. So I get up on the stop that I was about to get off. This is around 6.30 in the evening. And right when I was about to exit the subway door, this guy starts just shouting at me and just effing Muslims, like, get out of our country. And just, he was spitting on me and the spit was like you know, falling all over my face and, and his hands came very close to choking me. Her work has been featured in Artnet News, The Huffington Post, NY Daily News, International Business Week, BuzzFeed and the list goes on. She lives and works in New York. Her work has also been featured in shows across the globe. These include her solo show at Chokandi Art Gallery in Pakistan, Karachi Binale, solo show at AIR Gallery, solo show at National Museum of China in Beijing, and much more. It's 10 feet by 8 feet, and there is a hole in the middle of this wall, aluminum wall, and inside the wall, the inside the hole is a seesaw. And uh, when the kids sit on the seesaw, they because there is a whole 48 inches, the height of like five to six years old kid, they can see each other. But when adults sit, they only see their own reflection. And I am proud to say that it's a permanent installation in Pakistan. It's part of the zoo. I'm going to talk to Kinza about her work and her journey to the US. I am so excited to welcome Kinza to my show. Hi, Kinza. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I am so excited. So you grew up in Lahore, Pakistan. I grew up in Lahore as yes. well. So we share same town. Absolutely. Um, how much of your work reflects your Lahori identity, all the vibrant colors and, and loud noises and everything? So I personally, that is definitely up to the viewer to decide. But to me personally, when I look at my work, I feel like even though I have left Pakistan and Lahore and I am in New York, but it's still very much part of my references and a lot of the language that is part of my paintings and, for example, the Persian carpets, which is really mm -hmm. something when I was growing up, you know, as Desi people, we have these carpets, a big part of our growing up. And not just in Desi, but obviously, like, overall, universally, but especially in Pakistan. I mean, you know, you know, our grandparents and our, you know, like, ajad, ajdad, as yes. they say, we, we have so much pride in these old, like, very antique-ish carpets and we take so much pride in them. So uh, carpet is one of the motif that I use, which I personally think it's not just a Lahore, but kind of more South Asian Persian motif, mm -hmm. uh, more linked with our part of the, the society and culture. And and then also I have used stuff like lota, which the American <laughs> would say, what the hell is lota? So lota is like a Muslim shower, which if you go to any household in Lahore, you would feel that that's a big uh, part of the part vocabulary of, exactly. of any household. 
I also use hijab and dupatta, which is like the headscarf. And uh, that is, I also feel like a big uh, kind of a conversation linked with the Muslim identity. And Kinza, so. we will talk about hijab that you've used in your mm-hmm. art, but you've also experienced it firsthand, although you don't wear hijab, but no. there's a story behind it. That and we'll right. go into that yes. later. Yes. But before that, I want to... Ask you about your family. So as I was prepping for your interview, I read somewhere that you come from a family where your dad is westernized Mm -hmm. and your mom was more traditional growing up. Right. So what kind of pressure did you feel at home or did you experience any pressure when your parents' views were so different? And did you gravitate towards one point of view more than the other as you were growing up? Mm-hmm. I feel like I was a very troubled child <laughs> because of that clash. My father, when he was four years old, he went to Western uh, schools and grew up in Western, uh, with Western values and mindset. And there was uh, a constant clash between the values between my mom and my father. My mother was, like you said, very traditional. And I think it created a lot of anxiety in me because I was always split between the two. And my father was an alcoholic and there was this big clash of push and pull. My mother disapproved that and my father constantly kept doing it. And he was a pilot in the Air Force. And I grew up with dance parties and I would go and peek down and there was sleeveless and dance and booze and, you know, and then in the morning there was a fight that, oh, you had more than one or two and you shouldn't. So it was a constant clash and I felt like that I was not allowed to talk about it. So I was silenced constantly to keep all of that and other many other things which I think a lot of us can also relate and hence it kind of art became one of the motifs to uh, one of my language to express myself but there was to answer your question there was a big clash and that really messed me up as a kid. Do you have siblings? Yes, I have two brothers. So were yeah. you able to talk to them? Because I'm sure they were experiencing same Yes, but stuff you know, you, you want some more wiser. I was the eldest. Oh. And I was always asked by... Every time they had a fight, they would stand the three of us in line and say, okay, we are going to split up. So are you going to go with your dad or are you going to go with your mom? And you're like, no, but I want both and I love both. So there was this constant kind of... And I feel like as a kid growing up, I kept a lot of anxiety inside me. And I was like, oh, my God, what if they what's going to happen? And maybe it's my fault. You know, like typical kids, they always blame themselves. So so that clash did created a lot of dissonance. And how did that impact your relationship with both your parents, individual relationships? I was a total daddy's girl, hmm. <laughs> a complete like father's daughter. I would you know, get away with everything. And I was a very naughty kid, like, and I loved, I was a very curious kid as well. Um, So I remember my father, like I said, who was a pilot, I was, I remember in sixth grade, as young as sixth grade, and he would take me to these flying lessons on this small plane called Cessna. And my mother would freak out. She's like, are you nuts? She's going to die. These planes, small planes, they crash. (laughs) What are you doing? So... Yeah, I had a much more closer relationship. I felt like I, I, he would look at me and he would understand what I was going through. So I think I related more with my dad. And you understood him more than you understood your mom? Yes. Me and my mother always had this 
kind of a challenging relationship growing up. And it was much, much later, I believe, that we started. Now we are, thank God, alhamdulillah, we have a very close bond. And we are like best friends. I share everything with her. But it took it took a lot of kind of effort from both ends and, yeah, empathy. And, and how has your parents' relationship changed or evolved over the years? My father died when he was 38. Oh. That was my first trauma and that, uh, to a point where I still feel like I haven't gotten over it uh, since I was so close to him and I only felt like I have one parent. I had so much, like, uh, such a deep bond with him. And you were so close to and him. And I was yeah. very close to him. And I almost, I don't want to say I had no relationship. I love my mom and a very strong lady, uh, one of, I mean, she's a mentor, an inspirational figure. But growing up as a kid, you know, I felt like I was completely lost at such a young age when he was 38. What were you more, most scared of growing up? My father told me that if you put your mind to anything, you can do it. But as a kid, I was scared because I was always in trouble. I was scared <laughs> of getting caught <laughs> and getting like the shit beaten out of me from my mom. I wouldn't, but she would always throw these flying like her chappals. Desi moms do that. That's like their MO. Exactly. And I wouldn't listen to her. her huh. So I would sit... As a kid, I was a tomboy, you know, and I would sit completely with open legs, which was such a big no-no, you know, and it kind of enters in my work later on. And I would do all the things which girls are not supposed to do. So and I, so I learned driving in sixth grade, skating, swimming, and my brothers learned much later on. So so in in that way, I was not the traditional Pakistani girl, you know. So so was it a manifestation of your dad's Western ideals? Were you trying to rebel in a way against your mom's, uh, whatever her notion of what a girl should or shouldn't do? It could be. I kind of, I had to go through my master's and PhD to figure all of that yeah. out for myself. <laughs> because and I don't know if I still have figured it out. But I think it. Probably both growing up, you know, you do rebel and and my parents, my mother was very conservative when I was, you know, especially when my father passed away. I was not allowed to pick up the phone. I had never talked to a guy for a, until I was, you know, I had an arranged marriage. Hmm. Like that was my first relationship ever. So it was a very strict upbringing when I was growing up. Um, Why do you think she was trying to do all of that? You know, as our culture is, where mm. girls are protected, and I still remember growing up that not just her, my mom, I don't want to make her sound like this bad kind of, you know, Hitler. Uh, she had her reasons, and it was out of love and care and protection, and especially when my father passed away. And there are so many incidences, you know, mm. which horror stories that you hear of abuse and rape and, uh, you know, to good touch, bad touch were taught early on. And yet some of those incidences happen in, you know, so many of our, unfortunately, kids or our, our own uh, memories of, of childhood when these incidences happen. She protected us, you know, mm. that was her, her her reasoning. And Kinza, the struggle continued. It didn't stop here. You got married relatively young mm -hmm. and you had a very comfortable lifestyle. Mm -hmm. But then you walked away from all of that. Mm -hmm. You decided to leave all of that and move on with your life. Was there a single trigger that led you to go on that path? 
Or was it like the cumulative effect of many things that were happening in your marriage that led you to just walk away from everything that mm-hmm. was comfortable? So walking away, I didn't as such walk away like that. The walking away was came later from the marriage. Mm-hmm. But earlier than that, the walk away was, as I mentioned earlier, I have my master's and my PhD in psychology. So I walked away from being a doctor from a PhD doctor to being a full-time practicing artist to the dismay of the whole world. They were like, are you nuts? What the fuck is wrong with you? And you were practicing. (laughs) Yes, I was like, I had a private practice. I was teaching. I was teaching master's and undergrad. And I had a private practice and a successful one. And I something was missing, Sadia. Hmm. Something was not working. And I felt the even though a lot of the things were superficially working, I'm talking about from my internal kind of journey. I felt that with my PhD and private practice, I was able to make a difference, but and I wanted to make conversations on a broader platform. And as a PhD, you when you publish it's small percentage that reads those journals. And I felt that there was this, as as they say in Urdu, this big kira inside me, you know, <laughs> this big kind of a little worm kind of inside that needed to express. So I needed a big, bigger platform to express my ideas. And I have always been a very creative person ever since I remember. It was, I have a very creative life. So it just took a lot of courage to make the shift from a doctor to a full-time artist. It was a harsh, harsh very hard journey from being a doctor to a full-time artist because I left everything and I was on a $8 budget for 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 few years like I left everything and it it was it was something which let's taught talk, me a lot yeah let's talk about your art now you portray women as strong and resilient women who can express their agency but in the process you're also highlighting struggles of women. Mm -hmm. And this is not just like South Asian women, like women all over, right? Mm -hmm. Why do you think that's important to show both sides rather than just focusing on victimhood, which many a times people do, especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to South Asian women? There is a lot of focus on them being victims, Mm -hmm. which is which is part of the story. I am not discounting that. But then you also are representing them as strong and resilient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like you said, a lot of the focus when I see my training with my psychology background and when I was doing therapy, I had a lot of clients who would be the victims of their situations. And it 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 is part of our stories and it is part of our struggles and they're important and we can't avoid them. But I now as a psychologist and as a full-time practicing artist, I feel like I'm bored from victims, victimization stories. Everybody can be a victim and it is so easy to be a victim. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it is much, much, it takes so much more out of you to be, be to get up after being kind of slaughtered by the whole world or whatever, you know, trauma that you are struggling internally or externally to get up again and again and keep fighting and moving forward. So I I find these stories much more interesting where they are victims and they have these women and men and, you know, LGBT population and trans, like all of us have our traumas. But how do you change that narrative from that of very negative to something where you can 
have agency over your own life story. And you're also trying to bring communities and societies mm-hmm. together. So you mm-hmm. also are trying to create empathy between cultures and mm-hmm. societies. Now, to me, when I think about em- empathy, to me, it's an acquired skill. It and is. correct me if I'm no, wrong. No, you're right. Absolutely. How do we train ourselves to empathize with others? Because the way I see it, humans are self-serving mm-hmm. creatures by nature. We try mm-hmm. to protect our self-interests. How do we get out of that? and empathize with people we don't know, who mm-hmm. don't look like us, mm-hmm. and, and be able to create an agency for them? I think the first thing is to have empathy in your own self, right? Before we do anything for anybody else, I think to having to... The only person we have control over is us, ourselves, yeah. our thoughts and actions. So I feel like the idea that we are all different we are all unique and being able to see the differences and also challenging ourselves to be in situations where that makes us uncomfortable and stretching ourselves to be able to get ourselves in that situations and then see the situation so empathy comes when you have that capacity to do that and to put your you know, for in other person's shoe Mm -hmm. without just like earlier we were talking about victimization, just Mm -hmm. seeing, oh, it was just like me and my. So I feel like that is a much more selfish orbit in which a lot of us choose to be in. Right. And empathy requires that you have the capacity to accept somebody else and their point of view and their differences and uh, step yourself in that situation and accept them and challenge yourself. And that creates that self-awareness. And that self-awareness is, I think, the first step towards empathy. So I should have asked you this question in the beginning, but I'm (laughs) asking it now. How did you end up in New York? I was uh, so I was hired as a doctor to teach in Dubai. Mm. So I was teaching at Lums oh, nice. uh, in Lahore. So I was in Lums uh, right after my PhD. I was uh, a visiting faculty in their business school, huh. and I was teaching emotional intelligence, which is my dissertation. I taught there four years, and then I got hired from there in Dubai to teach business courses, uh, leadership and empathy and all of social skills courses. And when I went there, I have issues with authority figures. And if somebody <laughs> tries to control me, they were breathing down my neck that university's culture was very... And of, this was in Dubai. Yes. Yeah. And before that, it wasn't a sudden move. So before that, I was debating to have the guts and the balls to make the switch. And I was also painting and creating, you know, everything in my capacity and energy, uh, even at Lums, the paintings. And not not for social, uh, not for commercial purposes, but just for my own personal outlet. So when I was in Dubai, it was a perfect opportunity for me to kind of make the shift in a completely new environment because the culture was so not me. So I ended up saying no. I was supposed to teach the next day. The whole faculty was waiting. Dr. Kinza from USA, because they didn't have a lot of USA faculty, is going to come and teach. And it was really hard because, you know, you have so many people waiting. And I was supposed to sign up two-year contract. And I was like, you know what? No. In that moment, my mom stood up for me and she said, you know what, if you're not happy, no matter how much money they're offering you, go ahead and follow your 
dream, your passion. And that's how you ended up in New York. Yeah. We all and know then that. I yeah. Then I said no and then I went back and forth between Dubai and, and I just said New York is the place. So you were in the US but you were living somewhere else before New York. Yes, I was in Atlanta. Oh. I, I finished my studies and everything, not in New York, but I did I was in Atlanta before before moving to to New York. So how big a change was moving from Atlanta to New York? I mean, you you so you went from Atlanta to Dubai. Yes. And then you came to New York. That is correct. What was the transition like? I mean, first of all, culturally, all mm-hmm. three places are different. Right. And also, New York is a hustle, right? Yes. You have to do a lot more. It's like constant mm-hmm. struggle and work. How did you manage all of that? I still remember I think it was my first week. And I, I had, I had to buy something, and I went, and the, the it was a, the, the path was kind of tiny, and I think I, the, my bag accidentally hit the other lady's arm or something, and I didn't realize, so she just cursed me to a point where I just looked at her and I didn't even know how to respond like fuck and this was in New York this was in New York this was my first experience and <laughs> she was saying all these big curses that I was like oh they're, they're creative and I was really mad but I didn't know how to even respond and then I remember precisely I went back and opened YouTube and I just practiced in the, in front of the mirror that I'm going to curse back like this <laughs> I'm going to stand up for myself so now you have learned how to curse like a New Yorker <laughs> <laughs> that was my first learning. <laughs> so, Kinza, let's talk about... We, we talked about something earlier. We talked mm-hmm. about empathy. And mm-hmm. you really experienced it. Like, what you did was you don't wear hijab. Mm-hmm. But then you decided to wear hijab for a few days in mm-hmm. New York to experience what women and girls who wear hijab go through. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that experience and what it taught you? Yeah, so earlier we were making comments about the idea of empathy and stretching ourselves yeah. to so some of my nobody in my family as such wears it so one of my cousins started wearing it and she challenged me that why don't you try it on and and some of the other people so I did try it on and um, when I tried it on I again go YouTube is our you know kind of the, the <laughs> go to uh, thing the right go to thing and I learned how to wear it, and I tried it on, and then I wore it on the subway. And this is where I realized that the Islamophobia is much more pronounced than I had, you know, my own kind of blinders on my eyes. So I was on the subway, and I'm sitting there. First of all, nobody's sitting around, like uh, three or four seats are empty around me, which I didn't notice. But anyway, so I get up on the stop that I was about to get off. This is around 6.30 in the evening. And right when I was about to exit the subway door, this guy starts just shouting at me and just effing Muslims, like, get out of our country. And just, he was spitting on me and the spit was like you know, falling all over my mm-hmm. face and, and his hands came very close to choking me, but I kind of ran and, wow. and rushed outside of the subway. Nobody, by the way, took a stand. Nobody said stop. And this is in New this York? This is in New York, Upper West Side. When when did this happen? Was this like post... 2017. 2017. Yeah. So it was post-2016 election. No, sorry, not 2000, two, uh, 2014. Oh, so it 2014. was before. Yes, okay. 2014. So I rushed out, my heart was thumping and beating and I had to sit down and, you know, and that moment was also a moment where it was like this, something needs to be done about this. And there was an open call 
where Sax and I ended up, you know, doing this project together, which is called Hashtag Damn I Look Good, in which uh, both of us were invited to present this uh, performance at the Dumbo Art Festival. Mm. I believe that was in 2014. And we had six or 650 people tried it on. The whole idea was not to promote hijab or hijab is great or, or not. The whole idea was about tolerance. Uh, if somebody wants to be naked, you know, it's fine. It's, it's yeah, fine. Exactly. But if somebody wants to wear it, you know, let's have tolerance about it and empathy. What kind of response did you get? I got, I think because it was an art fair, Sadia, mm. so the <laughs> the people were much more receptive to it. I would say 80%, 90% was very positive. But the, we did ruffle some feathers also and, and people made comments about it. And then... Sex and I, uh, we had a videographer behind us kind of recording while I was wearing it because it says on, I'm taking basically selfies while wearing it and it says hashtag damn I look good. So while I'm taking the selfies also on Times Square walking around wearing it, people were like putting their thumbs down and saying like just like asking me to leave and stuff and then that there's also a naked cowboy girl there she's like she came stood right next to me and people started giving us five dollars that can we take a picture of you there's a hijab (laughs) and right next to it is like it was a weird moment but you know that also shows that I also had my blinders on I didn't realize that it was that pronounced because it's New York and I in my mind New York is the coolest place in in the universe yeah but I think it takes a lot of courage to do what you did Kinsa because to be honest if if I think about it I just can't do that Mm -hmm. even just to experience what what Mm -hmm. women who wear hijab go through Mm -hmm. because I'm so scared I as you said I am scared of the backlash the kind of response and that's why I feel so Mm -hmm. like strongly for women who wear hijab and who are trying to assert their identity and I'm so appreciative of what they're doing and as you said I don't wear hijab you don't but that's not our place to decide right. who does what. No, it's right? not. It's their right, right if they want to assert their identity through hijab, mm-hmm. so be it. It For me, it's about agency, right? Right. And my cousin, like, nobody wanted her to wear it. Actually, she wanted to wear it. She took a stance in front of the whole family. She's like, I wanted to wear it because when I go and teach uh, in this boy's uh, university, I don't want to be the sexual object. So mm-hmm. it is my agency. I want them to just focus on what I'm teaching. So I respect that. I respect when it is a choice. So you were recently in Pakistan and you you and Saak Safridi, he's another artist. I will be interviewing him soon. You guys unveiled this permanent sculpture. Mm-hmm. It, and it's called Don't Grow Up. It's, it's a, a trap. trap. It yes. is a trap. Don't grow way. up, guys. It's a trap. I'm <laughs> oh, telling you. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. When I saw that, I was like, this is so on point because I feel like Adulthood is so overrated. I really want to go back to my childhood. So what was that experience like? And what were you trying to convey through that sculpture? Okay. So the sculpture is a stainless steel aluminum mirror finish. It's a chrome mirror finished Mm. sculpture. And it's if the audience can imagine, the listeners can imagine, it's 10 feet by 8 feet. And there is a hole in the middle of this wall, aluminum wall. And inside the wall, inside the hole is a seesaw. And uh, when the kids sit on the seesaw, they because there is a hole 48 inches, the height of like five to six years old kid, 
they can see each other. But when adults sit, they only see their own reflection. Mm. We wanted it to be a moment of reflection when adults sit. And because when we are kids, as you were saying, when we... Uh, we don't have these preconceived notions and we don't have these... We don't have inhibitions. We accept people. We have empathy. We, if somebody gets hurt, we'll go and we. the kids start... Another kid, if one kid uh, cries, the other one starts crying too yeah. because they can feel the pain. But as we grow older, we have these tarnished you know, views of uh, by our biases, discrimination, and all of that kind of seeps into our adulthood. So we wanted it to be a moment where... The kids can come out in us because all of us have this little child, yeah. even if it, we admit or we let them come out or not. And be in touch with our of that memory and that childhood and is about that loss of innocence and then bringing that childhood back into our And I lives. was going to ask you, how did you convince, you know, adults to sit? Because I was looking at those Instagram yeah. videos of it yeah. and everybody was enjoying it right. so much. It was like... Grown-ups were mm-hmm. enjoying it and kids were enjoying it. And how, how did that happen? First of all, it was the, during the Biennale. So oh. a lot of people wanted to get on it. And believe it or not, since there it's a zoo, but by the way, for the listeners, it was it's a permanent, I'm proud, to Sax and I are proud to say that it's a permanent installation in Pakistan. It's part of the zoo. And in the park area, people were not interested in going and looking at some of the animals because it was so hot, but they wanted to come and sit on this, which made us so happy. And they wanted to look at themselves because, you know, at the end of the day, we all, (laughs) it was also interesting for people to sit and look at themselves and not see the other person. There was one husband and wife. And when they got off, they were like, this is so cool. Because unmarried people, they just want to look at themselves. They don't want to look at the spouse after 10 <laughs> years of marriage. <laughs> That's so interesting. So going back to your art, as I said in my intro, um, you do a lot of, basically you create art to express women's agency. Has there been one piece that you created which really I'm sure every piece speaks to you Mm -hmm. but one piece that led you to some introspection or that spoke to you and the audience much more than you know your other pieces there are two that for me are you know that kind of did something inside me one is I call it the story of Rashida in which she's a lady uh, who is uh, who sweeps the floors and you know the supers in Mm -hmm. uh, in, in Lahore, in Pakistan. She has four daughters and um, she's been there for six years. And every time I go, I interact. And then I ended up making, you know, how we make friends with the people mm. who, who help us in Pakistan, which is a, a not a uncommon thing. So I ended up involving her in my art projects and I went in their communities and I met with you know, some trans population and I met with her daughters and I met with the husband who is disabled. And yet her attitude, Saadia, was so positive, Mm. you know, and she was, she, they had little, but their hearts were big and their attitude were amazing and they were not victims, even though they had all the reasons to be victims. And that just, I think that that touched me so much. And a lot of my works kind of talks about this idea of tabdili. That means, that's an Urdu word that means transformation. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, she was trying her best 
to, you know, give education to her daughters and to, to make the best out of whatever life has given her. So that, I think, inspired me. And that came into my work. Um, so that was one. And the other one was in a work where I collected 1,100 empty uh, 9mm bullets from all around New York shooting ranges. And 1,100 because in 2016, in one year, it was 1,100 honor killings that were reported in Pakistan. And up till 2016 in America, there has been 1,100 mass school shootings, deaths that are reported up till 2016. So I wanted to put those that number 1,100 on as those empty nine uh, millimeter bullet casings to honor their lives. So that became a performance piece in the Museum of Moving Images in 2017. And when I wear it like a hijab, 1,100 bullets, on which I stitched very painfully on a fishnet, if wow. you can imagine, these glistening bullets. Mm. And I wear it, and then it's 50, 60 pounds. It's very heavy, as you can imagine. The, and you just wore the whole thing? I wore thing. the whole thing. And then I had the pictures of the victims of from honor killing and from mass school shootings rolled into it to create empathy for the audience because I I was like, I don't want to blame one culture, but I want to say that violence is universal and Mm -hmm. it hits all of us in different ways. And then when um, and then after they unroll the pictures and interact with it, I invite the audience to pick that uh, 11 yards of fishnet with 1100 bullets. So the more people carry it with me, the lighter Mm -hmm. the weight of the bullets get, you know. So that Kinza, this sounds so incredible. Where can people find your art? They can go and check out on my website, which is Kinza Najam with the Q, Q-I-N-Z-A-N-A-J-M dot com. And then also my Instagram, which is Kinza, Q-I-N-Z-A and one, Kinza one on Instagram. So before we wrap up, if you were to describe America in a word or a phrase, how would you do that? I would say it's revolutionary. Because I want to say positive revolution is going to come. Hopefully a different political scene will come. It has its ebbs and flow and something positive, I'm hoping. So hope and revolution. Thank you so much, Kinza. This was wonderful. Guys, check out Kinza's work. I am so excited. I will be visiting her art gallery very soon. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can check our website. I will be posting um, links to Kinza's work on our website once I release her episode. In fact, before I release her episode. And before we wrap up, you have a Netflix documentary coming out soon or, or a documentary series coming out soon. It's I don't know if it's on Netflix. Process. It is in the uh, process. It's right? being pitched. Let's see if it comes, uh, if it gets picked up by Netflix or not. It's called Opening Night, which is about demystifying the art process of how artists think and create works. When can we see it? We are, we are, I have no idea. You will <laughs> so be we'll the first wait. to know. Yes. We'll wait. Thank you so much. This was wonderful, Kinza. Thank you, Saadia. Thank you for having me on board. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.